Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So technology is revolutionizing all aspects of our lives. It started with the basics like communication and information storage, and is now moving into the softer, more human side of life, like say, love. And with love comes dating and romance. So it's really no surprise that over the past few years, we've witnessed the meteoric rise of dating apps. Now this year, the dating app industry will generate over $2 billion in revenue across hundreds of millions of users. And that is why I am very excited to announce Justin McLeod, the CEO and founder of Hinge as today's podcast guest. While attending HBS, Justin started Hinge with the idea that the app would be designed to be deleted. And since then, he's built one of the most popular apps in the app store while simultaneously sending someone on a date every four seconds. So in today's episode, Justin and I discuss both the successes and failures of his entrepreneurial journey, as well as how Hinge's focus on getting you off of the app is a meaningful differentiator in a competitive landscape of other apps that instead seek to keep users addictively coming back. Additionally, Justin also reflects on Hinge's sale to Match Group and how he thinks about negotiating with a strategic buyer. So why don't we get started? Hey, Justin, how's it going? Great. How are you? I am doing great. Excited to learn a little bit more about Hinge's founding story here. So why don't we start off with a bit of background on you and why you decided to start the very successful business that you run today? Yeah. So I started Hinge in 2011. So I was in business school at the time up at Harvard and I had an offer to start at McKinsey coming out of school And it was kind of a random series of events, but my college girlfriend, Kate, who I was in love with still, but hadn't spoken to in four years, I reached back out to her to try to get back together with her. And she said no, and I was heartbroken. And Harvard was supposed to be throwing this last chance dance party. So I built an app on Facebook that would allow people to list their crushes and find out if anyone would match up. And that just started this idea running for Hinge, which would be a really simple, easy way for people to use their existing social profiles like Facebook to date. And at the time, this was 2011. So this is not, Tinder doesn't exist yet, Bumble doesn't exist yet. And so that was the idea. And I just got obsessed with it. And it turned into what Hinge is today. And Justin, could you share any sort of metric here for the audience, just to give them a sense for scale and how large the business is today? Sure. I mean, the main metric that we track as a company is how many dates we're sending our users on. And at this scale now, we're sending people on a date about every four seconds. Wow, that is fantastic. And I am admittedly part of that user metric as Hinge is the only dating app that I use. I personally just enjoy the user experience a lot more than let's say a Tinder or a Bumble. And with that, would love to hear a little bit about how you've built in differentiation into the Hinge user experience, especially for context for those in the audience who are happily in a relationship. The main difference, I think, is that Hinge is the app that's designed to be deleted. People only spend six minutes a day on Hinge, yet I think we really have the best outcomes in terms of getting users out on great dates. We're the number one app mentioned in the New York Times wedding section. Three out of four dates turn into a second date. So we're really effective, but you don't have to spend a lot of time using us. And that, I think, is really what sets us apart. Yeah. 
And anecdotally, I'd say that the experience is less superficial where you're not just mindlessly swiping on pictures and dehumanizing someone, but instead you're interacting with their content and hopefully creating meaningful conversation. Yeah, a lot of magic behind that as well. So of course, the profiles have prompts on them, for example, which are short questions that lead to great conversations. And that really helps bring people's personality forward. Another piece of the magic is you, instead of the swipe feature, we actually have the liking content. So if you like someone, you choose something on their profile and you can comment on it. And that really helps us zero in on people's tastes so much faster and so much better because people are more selective when you do that. When it's not just a flick of the thumb, but choose something you like and say something about it. It really leads to people being selective and then that feeds our learning so much better so we can really zero in on your type. I'm so glad that you mentioned learning people's tastes via machine learning as I am so curious about all of the data that your team collects on people and their preferences, not just across demographics, but also just with the content and photos themselves, all leading to a more scientific take on dating So what are some interesting patterns or trends that you've derived from your data? I mean, it's really a ton. And my data scientists are really great. We actually just launched a feature called We Met late last year, where now we're actually not only collecting data about people's tastes when they're using the app, but we're now, when people go on a date, we follow up to ask them how it went and whether they'd like to go on a date with that person again. So we're trying to understand not just people's taste in the app, but really Like once you interface that person out in real life, how do we continue to make the algorithm better? And so our main goals are to really understand people's tastes. And then the more complicated thing is to match them up with a person who's also going to like them, right? And that I think is the magic of what we do. And are there any other examples of how you've leveraged data to improve the user experience? Everything we do is that way. So let's take your turn, for example. Your turn is a feature in the app that we've developed that reduces ghosting. And what we learned is that people would so-called ghost where they would stop, they drop off a conversation. And a lot of times that we learned that it was not intentional. And so what we realized is the, the interface of a dating app is kind of like texting, but it's not really, it's kind of a hybrid between texting and email because people write longer messages, they wait a while for a response, and they don't know everyone in the list. And so it gets complicated to manage this stuff. It's complicated to remember who you responded to, who you haven't to. And so we had to develop this sort of hybrid interface that sort of was a mix between email where you could leave things marked as unread and it told you to follow up versus just a text where you check it and then it goes away. And so talking to users, getting the data, testing these things, that's our iterative process for always trying to make sure that we're increasing the number of dates per user. And I think it's worth bifurcating between building a very successful app and building a very successful business on top of that app. Could you talk about Hinge's monetization model? Hinge is a free app, and that's really important because ultimately the thing that matters most for people who use Hinge is not our interface, but it's the people who are on the platform. That's what they're here for. So creating a free app ensures that we have a large community and a great dating pool for everyone who joins. We do monetize a portion of our users pay for upgraded features. And it actually works really well because the types of features that people pay for, we don't want everyone to have because it would ruin the ecosystem. So those are unlimited likes, seeing everyone who likes you in a grid view, being able to filter people out based on everything from like height to religion or things like that. 
So these are things that more intentioned users can pay for to enhance their experience. But if they're things that also that if everyone had, the app wouldn't work anyway. Makes sense, but leads me to a curiosity around what I like to think of as the churn paradox, where if Hinge is actually serving its stated purpose of finding someone a great lifelong relationship, then theoretically, the more successful you are at that mission, the more churn you'll have because users no longer need your service, right? So how do you think about this paradox where your job is to get a customer to stop paying you? We find that practically this paradox doesn't exist. Every single time that we've gotten meaningfully better at helping people get out on great dates, our growth accelerates. And that's just because there's always going to be single people in the world. And if you're the most effective platform, you're getting more people out on dates, more people into relationships, and then they're going out and telling their friends. They're you know, getting written up in the New York Times wedding section. And that just gets more people to come to Hinge. And as long as there are single people in the world, I don't think I'm too concerned. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm hoping that the delay in millennials getting married helps the Hinge growth profile. <laughs> just delayed, just delayed. They're still getting married. It's just happening a little bit later, which actually I think is great. It's a really great trend. And divorce rates are falling among that same group. And in fact, if you meet on a dating app, you're less likely to get divorced. Wow. And Wow, that is really surprising. I'm, I'm very surprised by that statistic. <laughs> I don't think it is, though, because when people who are using dating apps are out there and they're really, you get to learn who you like, who you don't like, you get more dates, you get more relationships over time. And by the time you consciously choose to settle down with someone, it's like it's a very thoughtful, well-informed decision. And so I think for yeah. that reason, yeah, people are getting married a little bit later, but when they do get married... I think it's a much better and much more successful relationship. That is a really great pitch. I actually love that. It's a little bit counterintuitive at first, but it makes sense. But beyond that, you know, we had talked about the number of dates as one of the metrics you tracked. I'm curious, are there any other important KPIs that you use to gauge the health of the business? That really is our number one metric. This year, we have an internal initiative called Raise the Bar. And that's really about making sure that as we continue to scale, we don't lose the sense of our community which our values are authenticity and courage and empathy. And so we're really looking at how do we make sure everyone really participates in this culture. People are putting effort into their profiles. People are treating each other with kindness. People are really putting themselves out there and being their real selves and not polished self versions of themselves. And so our product team is really focused this year on what we're calling a community score, which is where we ask a sampling of our users every single day from strongly disagree to strongly agree, are people on Hinge kind, are people on Hinge authentic, and are people on Hinge putting in the effort to find a meaningful relationship? That's interesting. And as you reflect on your entrepreneurial journey, have there been any surprising trends or inflection points that have altered the course of the company? There was a huge moment in 2015 leading into 2016 when Hinge was originally an app. We had the swipe feature. We were friends of friends. And our growth started to really plateau. And we also just found that the sentiment against Hinge and dating apps in general was just really starting to fall. It sounded really fun and cool in 2012, 13, 14. And then around 2015, it was like people were realizing this wasn't just a panacea and came with a whole host of problems on its own. And in fact, for a lot of people, felt like dating was more exhausting now than it ever had been. And our decision to reboot the company, it was, you know, a really, really tough decision. We, like I said, growth had plateaued and 
we just weren't making great progress. And so we made the decision to essentially reboot the company. I had to let go of half the employees. We started the code base over from scratch. We started the UI over from scratch. And we relaunched that in October of 2016. And since then, it started off a little slow, but then we just started to just accelerate in terms of pace. And that was the biggest inflection in growth. Yeah, that's really tough, especially when you have to sit there and let go of your friends who have put their blood, sweat, and tears into building this business alongside you. But I'm really glad you successfully worked through that transition. Now, for the sake of the founders in the audience, do you have any advice or key lessons learned to help them ease the pain if they're ever in a similar situation? There was a whole playbook that I kind of developed and went through as we went through that process. And it's hugely difficult to let go of half the company and everyone to see their friends go and then to have the people who remain feel fired up and excited and ready to double down. So that was really tough. You know, we did it all at once. That's certainly one lesson. It's just cut deep, cut once so you don't have to keep doing it again because doing it again and again can be really, really hard. Another thing was we did that and then immediately afterwards we took everyone on a sort of surprise three-day retreat. We really examined our culture, examined how we got to the place we got, and figured out how we were going to change going into the future. And that was a really, really useful exercise and really changed the trajectory of, of where Hinge went after that. Yeah, that's a really great rebirthing process there. And it ultimately led to a pretty fantastic exit for the business here, where you ultimately sold a majority of the business to match. So curious, what was the rationale there? We took investment from Match Group originally shortly after the reboot. They saw some of our early metrics, and we believe that they were going to be a great partner for us over the long term. So they invested in Hinge at that point. And you know, over time, we've really learned to trust and like each other and benefit from each other. And so they went to a 51% stake, and they actually just announced that they went to 100% stake. And our growth has just continued to accelerate with... I think their help and their expertise and their wisdom and experience, but also with my team's sort of hunger and focus on really becoming the dating app that's designed to be deleted. And dealing with the strategic like IAC and match group, what were some lessons you learned around maximizing value for you and your shareholder base? I mean, this is sort of intuitive, but I think you just, when you're going into an M&A relationship with someone, especially if you're going to stay with the company, which has always been the plan for me, you've got to really trust and respect your partner because the initial terms and the pricing and that kind of stuff is just 2% of the deal in the long term. How are your cultures going to work together going into the future? How will the company stay independent, but also you know receive the wisdom from the parent company and guidance? And what's it going to be like to report into a public company? And what are all the details of the final acquisition and payments and all those kinds of things going to work? And ultimately, like the devil really is in the details. So having a, a partner that you trust and respect and can work through all those things with in a really good way that doesn't sort of tear down the morale of the company, but actually build us up instead, I think is really, really important. And Match Group has actually been an incredible partner on that front. That's great. I like to imagine that Barry Diller would come into the room and just save everything every time a deal would go south. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Last set of questions here all revolve around the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. Now, so I'm curious, are there any recurring themes or patterns that you see consistently across successful consumer applications beyond Hinge? 
For me, the biggest thing is there are some apps that are growing because people use the app. And I think there are some apps that are out there and growing because the app uses people. And I think in the long term, if you really want to succeed, at least I hope that the apps where people are using you and you're not using them are the ones that win. And that I think is core to the heart of Hinge. And what that really means is that as a company, we don't obsess with our weekly like growth numbers or number of times people log in each day or any sort of engagement, retention metrics, like those all really come secondary. Of course, we track them and we monitor them. But the focus of Hinge is not staring at the scoreboard. The focus of Hinge is really making sure that we're sending people out on great dates because that's what they came to us for. They didn't come to us to get engaged or to spend all day in our app or to get more matches. They came to us to get out on great dates. And I think companies that really revolve around serving the customer over the long term and not on their own growth I think win over the long term, maybe not the short term. We're sort of, I believe, the turtle in the race, but I do think that that kind of focus will help us win really over the long term and pay dividends. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, right? I mean, when you think about all the science that's coming out about the addictiveness of social media and the massively detrimental effects it has on mental health, I can see how maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, society as a whole wakes up to ditching your apps, ditching your technology, and being more mindful and living in the present. Yeah, I think we're going to look back on it like smoking, only it's way worse than smoking, frankly. I think it's way more damaging to us. And I do think that we're already seeing the beginning of a backlash against that. Personally, I don't have Facebook on my phone. I don't have Instagram on my phone. I don't even have Slack and email on my phone because it's just too easy to get distracted with with that stuff and not be present to where you are. And I hope that that's where the trend goes for everyone. Yeah, I think that's today's best takeaway. And shifting gears here, though, are there any mental models that you consistently leverage in your own daily life? My belief is that like, I'm not a particularly brilliant decision maker. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not. My ethos around that is just fostering really good debate and letting the answer emerge through consensus and organically our values here are authenticity and courage and empathy. And that's what we try to foster among our members. And it's also hugely what we try to foster among our employees. And for that, it means provide maximum transparency. I mean, it's actually crazy the level of transparency we have at the company, especially going through the M&A process and everything else. Like I'm totally open with every member of the team as that whole thing was unfolding, getting people's opinions, getting people's feedback and letting decisions start to emerge as I foster really good debate among the team. And that's kind of my model for making decisions. That and sleep on them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's oftentimes I find myself so stuck in jamming out all the emails I possibly can and making a decision as quickly as possible. And it's nice to just take a step back and reflect and spend some time on it. Because when you avoid more situations where you make a mistake, and then that's actually my last question here is, what was something that you thought was going to work? Maybe you went by the book and it actually didn't work out. When I look back at Hinge, it's just one failure after another. And it's only when I zoom out, you know, it's day to day, it just feels like failure after failure after failure after failure. (laughs) And then I zoom way out and I'm like, no, wait, Hinge is doing okay. Like we're actually doing great. (laughs) So there's been a lot of those. The biggest one, a huge learning for me was when we introduced the swipe feature, we were copying, you know, Tinder at the time because we thought that would be smart. And what I learned is that you can't beat 
a gorilla in a banana eating contest, right? Like if you're, if you're going to compete against the big player in your space, you can't play their game. You have to play a different game. And I think that was a big mistake is it looked and it was enticing, but when you focus on your competition and you start copying them, you'll just get sucked into their sort of center of gravity and you don't want to collide with a mass that's so much bigger than you. So what I think it was a huge turning point was the change to liking content, which just completely changes the way that people think about how they engage with the app. It makes people put up more and better and deeper content, which helps people get to know them better. And like, it just sets us on a completely different path. I think that's a huge lesson that I learned. It's funny because nowadays, I think people put a ton of time into being thoughtful in their Hinge profile. I mean, literally some of my friends will agonize over hours over their content and their messaging. So I think we'll continue to see Hinge experience phenomenal growth, especially as you continue to compound on top of your network effects. But Justin, I think that's all the time we have for today. I appreciate you taking the time and look forward to reconnecting soon. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Once again, a big thank you to Justin for joining us today. It was a ton of fun to hear about Justin's entrepreneurial journey, building one of the most popular apps on the App Store. For show notes and more, I'd encourage you to head over to the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heezy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y, or on Instagram at John G. Hu, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.